so nice to chat with you today, Matthew. Thanks, Anita. Looking forward to it. So for our listeners, Matthew Holt is our guest today. He is the founder of the Healthcare Blog, which is really, I think, one of the first blogs that began in healthcare. And it's grown over the years, has an amazing team of contributors, and I want to say around 75,000 visitors or so a month. And so Matthew, as you will hear, is also a self-declared healthcare curmudgeon. So I'm sure we'll have a lively discussion on a variety of med tech-related topics. Thanks. Looking forward to it. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm curmudgeonly, but opti- I'm an optimistic curmudgeon. I love it. <laughs> or, or curmudgeonly optimistic or optimistically curmudgeonly, curmudgeonly or something. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, you know, I think exactly where many of us are post-pandemic. And, you know, kind of on the subject of the pandemic, this has just been such an amazing time for med tech. And we define med tech really broadly to include, you know, applications of AI machine learning and healthcare, telemedicine, digital therapeutics. I mean, what are some of the trends that you're seeing, you know, post-pandemic as you're back meeting people in three dimensions on the conference circuit? What's catching your eye and, and catching your ear nowadays? Well, I think there's probably the really big picture, which has been definitely impacted by the pandemic, but not necessarily changed that much, is the question about who ends up being in charge of healthcare in general in the US system. And by that, I mean, right now, we have a, a, a system which is relatively stable, dominated by very large payers who have a sort of stable adversarial relationship with uh, a number of large healthcare systems, which tend to be oligopolies in each of their local markets. And the big question is, with all the new technology, which, you know, you can define Maytech as broadly as you like, but a lot of that is sort of technology, information technology and communication technology infrastructure that is being funded out of Silicon Valley, um, where you're sitting. With all of that technology, is that going to be, A, ignored, which you you kind of argue has been for this time, B, taken up by the incumbents and just used as what they do every day, or C, taken up by a new group of companies, new organizations who are going to come in and really have a serious market run at using it to, to become the centers of primary care, specialty care, and you know, eventually even sort of hospital care, diagnostics at home, all, all that kind of stuff. So that to me is, is the big question. And you are seeing right now, you know, a lot of venture investment, the 50 billion over two years, 75 billion, depends who you believe, a lot of venture investment. Much of it's going to companies who are selling to the incumbents. You know, a lot of companies like they give olive in the, on the hospital side or, or or some of the companies who raised who who are raised money to sell analytics to drug companies or what have you like a like a komodo but much of it's been raised by companies who look like they might be replaced incumbents building virtual primary care virtual hybrid primary care specialty care and in some cases building new delivery systems you know bricks and mortar or integrating integrating the two and that includes a lot of public companies like uh, Oak Street Health, uh, One Medical, and now with Iora, but also a lot of venture-backed startups who are just kind of getting going, like a Firefly Health or a company, perhaps you know, which is more on the sort of the mental health delivery system side, like a Lira or a, uh, a Headspace Health now, including Ginger. And those companies are essentially coming right at the traditional delivery system. They're actually saying we're going to we're going to replace you. 
There's a big question as to, you know, which parts of the system are easy to replace. Mental health seems to be quite easy. Virtual primary care seems to be doable. And which parts may be replaceable. So one thing you might think about is, you know, labs in the home as opposed to diagnostics at LabCorp or Quest. You know, how much could you get to where Theranos wanted to go to, didn't get to, but are there a lot of replacement companies doing that kind of stuff? So the question tends to be is how many of these new innovations are going to sort of end up sucked into the big incumbents versus how many are going to develop their own market? And a big wrinkle in this is we do know that outside of healthcare, there are some very large, very rich companies who have been circling the water and thinking about it, notably Amazon, but also Walmart and you know, you could argue CVS is in that category as well. What do they end up doing and how much of the delivery system do they end up delivering and controlling? And obviously, you know, right now Amazon isn't doing much. Walmart isn't doing much. CVS is complicated because it's bought itself a health plan as well called Aetna. But, you know, it's not doing a lot of primary care. But you could imagine that, you know, a substantial amount of primary care in a hybrid mode could be developed, could be sucked up between those, just those three organizations. You know, you know, you never know. And in that case, what does that do to the wider healthcare system, you know, which is kind of right now, primary care is more or less controlled by those hospital systems or by the uh, or by the plans they're working with. And the one last wrinkle, of course, is the biggest healthcare company, United Healthcare and Optum, has somehow quietly become one of the biggest providers as well, without without people really noticing it, and they have without really changing what they they're doing. But you know, again, they could do something very different as well, and they and they've got a lot of the pieces in place to to be a major provider that does a different job than current providers. So I would say that's the big, big picture I'm looking at as to how all of this different stuff fits together. So many different threads to unravel there. You know, one- Yeah, I just described the entire healthcare system and the new incumbents <laughs> together. So, you know, that's only $4 trillion worth of stuff to think about. <laughs> Easy enough to structure and solve. But I think one theme, right, that connects a lot of these threads is this interplay of data, the exchange of data. And then as we talk about the consolidation of these players, you then start thinking about some of the antitrust, some of the competition issues. And then there's this question of, you know, perhaps from a privacy standpoint, having silos of data can be good. If you say, hey, we're not sharing this data, we're not monetizing this data. But then when you look at it from the competition perspective, once an entity has amassed a massive amount of data, does it then hinder innovation in the space? Does it mean that you can't, you can't effectively compete because you don't have that access to data? What are your thoughts on, on that kind of interplay? Well, that's certainly been the case to now, right? It's been very hard for patients to move their data between different hospital systems and to get their data out of health plans. It's actually been quite hard for health plans to get their data out of hospital, the patient's data out of hospital systems. And there is, as you know, a ton of regulation in this area, which is now just going into play. Now, when you talk to real specialists in this area, like uh, uh, Lucia Savage or Devin McGraw, they'll tell you that this will really start moving when there are really substantial fines for what they call information, you know, what's called information blocking. When somebody really gets hung out to dry for not allowing a patient to, to take their data with them. So the question is, for, for this to have a really big impact, yes, I know there's a bunch of concerns with privacy and there's a bunch of concerns with uh, accessing data. The question is, will we develop a market where a patient intermediary, a patient advocate of some kind can easily get hold of data and move it around, preserving privacy and preserving, uh, but you uh, being as the patient's agent? Because the patient legally has been legally allowed this data since 1998 or whatever HIPAA actually passed, right? 
So right now that market doesn't yet exist, but with the Tefka um, regulations and others, you are now starting to see a number of companies who are sort of providing the plumbing and providing the ability to get the, the tunneling you know, into the systems to get that data. I'm talking about Health Gorilla, Human API, Redox, uh, uh, Particle, companies like that. And I'm actually working with a, a, I'm, a working with, I'm on the advisory board of a company, former, former Health 2.0 um, uh, employee, brilliant uh, doctor called Joy Bosai, who's, who's running a company called Pluto, which is, an, you know, and I've had my information go into it where I can just put my name where I used to live into it. And it's gone back and found, you know, automatically in the healthcare system, 20 years worth of my records. So you're starting to see the ability to bring this data together. And of course, then you've got to figure out who wants to use it. Well, the obvious people, and you mentioned them before, is, is the pharma business, because they're trying to do clinical trials. They want to get more information about those people in clinical trials. And it's a very expensive, time-consuming process. So that's one area. The other area, a company like Citizen has been trying to do this to, to put together data for oncology and for cancer, then are part of Illumini. And, and you can see that there are uh, there are other companies, this company called Sixto, which has been doing this also in the clinical trial area. There are some, some ideas where, okay, if I can easily amass data, what could I do with it? And one thing you could do is, you know, help farm companies do clinical trials. Another one you could do is you could build a marketplace of services on top of that data. So that if I, Matthew Holt, had some kind of chronic illness and all my data was available, I could, through some intermediary or myself, ship it out, you know, go add this to other data I might have in other areas and figure out if there's something that somewhere that I could be helped or more likely, to be honest, a health plan or some other intermediary would come along and say, okay, we've figured out all the stuff about your data. If you give us permission to put your data together, we could help you. So I think the data silos are going to start breaking down more. And I think that we'll be, we will start building marketplaces on top of data, which will hopefully help patients and people and not just hinder them, not just have them you know, be targeted for advertising. I think that's the kind of where we've been in, in that world. So I think this is getting better. And there are some people doing some stuff on the uh, in the Web3 world and the blockchain. There's, there's, there's a guy I, I know very well called Jonathan Hare, who's got a company called uh, WebShield, which is attempting to build an entire quantum privacy network where they can go and find your data without revealing who you are to any of the people they're getting the data from, from across a whole bunch of different areas. So that, that stuff isn't anywhere close to prime time yet, but you can kind of see where it might be able to go because... A lot of industries have got parts of this. I mean, I recall uh, forgetting my ID once and getting on a plane and going to New I got on the plane, they checked me out in San Francisco, they let me go to New York. And in New York, even though I could show them a picture of my ID and tell them and, and show them some credit cards and stuff about me, the guy kept on asking a bunch of questions. He kept on asking me like questions about where I lived and what streets were near where I... And obviously he had on his database a lot of information about me that only I would know and was checking to see I was me, right? So there are ways to access a lot of information about you. You do see it sometimes when you like you know, go online in fintech or whatever, and they ask you about, you know, play, which of these addresses you've ever lived in. You know, there are ways to, to, to get at people, right? We're going to see more of that come into healthcare, but obviously it's very sensitive information. But obviously you could start imagining that, yeah, there are ways we can do it without everyone having 17 epic portals. They're all, you know, my chart portals, they're all uh, logging into and finding that most of the good information isn't there. So I, I think... We're getting there, but we're not ready for prime time in kind of data sharing in an ethical, private, useful way. But I wouldn't discount it for the next little bit. I agree. And I, I bet your comments on this interplay with fintech are particularly interesting, right? I mean, on the one hand, you can see how these two fields, in a sense, are, are growing in parallel with fintech, maybe you know, 
four or five years ahead, right? You're disrupting a yeah. very heavily regulated sector. You're fixing elements of a really complex system, which I think everyone agrees has a lot of sources of friction, to put it mildly, right? You're seeing these new innovators coming in and trying to actually improve the customer, the patient, the caregiver experience. There's always the privacy-related complexity, but I do think in medtech, you also have this fundamental kind of safety overlay, which you don't in kind of traditional fintech. Do you think, yeah. yeah. Can, can, well, can, I, can I interject for a second there, Benita? I mean, I don't know if you've bought a car lately, but I hadn't bought a car for years. Then my car, then I hit a deer and I had to buy a, a deer. And poor deer didn't, didn't make it and the car didn't make it either, right? So, um, And it happens that I've now bought a whole bunch. I've now bought three times in the, in the last two years. I bought a car using one of these online services. They come to your house. They basically make it, you know, they let you test drive the car. If you like it, you buy it on the spot. And they can only do that because they can get data and information about you and they can easily allow you to access your bank account to them. So, you know, you can use some of these new tools, you know, Plaid is one of them and others, which essentially now allow access to that siloed data and actually the money in your bank account, right? And then you can buy a bunch of other tools like warranties and stuff on top of them. And compared to the old days when you had to go into the the, the dealership and then there was write a check and you had to borrow, all of that stuff has got much easier. So it's, it's basically the same principle with a few tools and a refresh of how you think about the customer experience. They've made it a very different experience. It's, it's just much better right, than going to a dealership and having to, to deal with all that crap. So I think that you you could imagine that the people who are now starting to, there are companies in healthcare who are building, you know, uh, come to your house and take a blood draw or come to your house and deliver diagnostics. And you can imagine, you know, Amazon getting into that as well. You can imagine that with, you know, can we bring your records with you? Can we track, can we tr- be tracking what you're doing in the house? Can we be delivering coaching to your house, which is kind of what Livongo, the one of the first successful digital health companies did. If you start adding all that together, yeah, I think you can see that that, that parallel starts coming. I mean, it's more complicated than selling you a car, but it's it's the same general principle. It can be made that experience much more consumer friendly and use these tools in the background to get the necessary data and the necessary transactions you know, in the right place. So I, I would agree. Sorry, you're about to ask a question, which I interrupted. <laughs> quite, quite okay. So I'm interested in the notion of increasing access to care, right? Particularly as we start thinking about things like health equity. I think certainly in in the month of March, we heard quite a bit about femtech, this intersection of women and medtech. As we start thinking about, you know, hospital at home, care at home, a more kind of greater focus on the elderly and, you know, other folks who can maybe benefit from some of the technological innovations, but haven't traditionally been thought of kind of at the forefront. Have you heard of you know, any interesting innovations in this area? What do you think are some of the characteristics of companies that are targeting perhaps smaller, more focused patient populations? And do you think they'll be able to scale or do you think they'll remain niche? That's a great question. And you're saying so much of that lately. And I think that there, the advantages of, of doing that are you know, online and virtual are tremendous. So if you look at uh, companies targeting LGBTQ populations uh, or even trans populations um, uh, alone, there's a couple of those. Uh, there's one called Folks, which is uh, doing that. And they're able to do a lot of this stuff. You know, previously, there were a couple of clinics in New York and San Francisco, you know, which were used by those communities, named at them. But if you lived in, you know, rural Kansas or whatever, you know, you couldn't find them, right? that, that stuff. But now it's all online. 
you can get, you can find that kind of provider. You're seeing a similar thing happen as people develop clinics for people with GI disorders like ABD or, or Crohn's disease or pain or a lot in special areas like the big special areas like heart disease and, and diabetes, right? Where we can use the scale of the internet to amass populations and then treat them. Obviously, the biggest area here has been mental health, which has grown in terms of mental health online, it's particularly suited for it because most mental health is either conversation, you don't need to do the physical exam, you, you do in some of these other areas. But you are seeing that grow and you're seeing companies start to add the sort of the hybrid part, which is when do we do physically need to see somebody, how do we do that? And there's even a couple of companies which are building sort of, you know, cloud kitchen equivalents. That's a company called Resilient, which is um, just getting going, which is building, you know, a center where you can go and you can see your doctor on video while a human being pushes and prods you with the various devices required to do the physical exam, you know, kind of sort of, and, it, and there are companies who are delivering stuff like that. Taito is one, which is delivering those kinds of tools to the house. So I think we're going to see a lot more of that hybridization, the connection of that, which would allow this specialization to work. Now, having said that, they're going to run quickly into the, the biggest complication, which is that really sick people need a lot of help, right? The, the, the sick, expensive people need a lot of help. And so you mentioned hospital at home. They were starting to see companies like Medically Home and others and Dispatch Health who are trying to sort of run the gamut, build a whole series of different tools and experience, uh, uh, tool sets and platforms, but adding onto that a lot of the physical stuff because you require physical delivery of not only people, but also oxygen and drugs and devices to the house. So it's a lot that is required to do to do that. And the more complex somebody gets, you have to do a lot of help with caregivers, which again is something that, you know, hasn't necessarily been built into the to the system before. So I think that, you know, you, you could imagine that this gets more and more complex, the harder it is. But I've been talking for a couple of years about this thing, which I've called the continuous clinic. It's kind of like, you know, virtual care plus hybrid care, you know, but you, where you could scale this up and down, you could, you could ratchet up and down the level of activity required based on how sick the patient is, right? So we're all at some point going to be tracked based on, you know, using our cell phones or using sensors in the home or whatever it is to be. But obviously the sicker, you know, perhaps the older, more frail, sicker you are, the more of that you, you, you're you going to require. And then that might add more people <laughs> coming into the home. And there are plenty of companies trying to build sort of systems where people are coming to the home with equipment and supplies and what have you as well. So I think you can imagine that that kind of mission control function of looking after populations from, you know, with clinical people, in a bunker somewhere like they are for ICUs now in most hospitals or many hospitals where they're looking at doctors are looking at the ICUs and the nurses are kind of there hands on in the ICU. The doctor is in a bunker across town or across the country. You might start seeing that for many more people where we're all being tracked and managed and measured and messaged, you know, monitored in a way that is that is somewhat you know, that, that is much more pervasive. And your oncologist or your GI specialist might be the person who looks after you. Most of the time. The question is, as you said, does that scale? Because right now, when people get sufficiently sick, they tend to get sucked up into the main healthcare system, which has got a lot of those pieces. They don't put them together particularly well, and people get lost between different specialists. But that is the functional hospital in the end, right? It's to put together all those people in one building so they can all come to one patient. And if you blow that up completely, what's left of the hospital? And so those people are not, the folks running big systems are not going to sit there and just take this. Right. So, uh, um, you know, you've already seen them start to invest in a lot of this remote monitoring and, and uh, at home, hospital at home and other types of, 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 of home care. There was a deal just this morning where United Health Group bought a big long term care at home facility. So 
how these things play out organizationally is not clear to me. So whether the old guard sucks it up or whether you get new companies delivering it. But I think the future, either way, I hope, is that people who have particularly chronic illnesses, which are in one or two specialties, get much better care than they do now being rotated between a bunch of different doctors. Absolutely. I know we've covered a lot of ground in our conversation. Do you have any closing thoughts on, on things that you're tracking moving forward? Uh, I think one interesting thing for your audience, because you're on the border of the pharma device, the you know, digital world is, I, I've spoken very generally about this stuff, but there are some very specific points sort of top of mind to how stuff gets regulated and paid for. And particularly there's this area of digital therapeutics and are these digital therapeutics associated with a pill? Are they replacing a pill? Are they wrapped, you know, they wrapped around it? How, how do they work? And how are they going to get prescribed? Are they going to get prescribed as, you know, you get a company like Big Health, which does Sleepio and Daylight, Daybreak, Daylight, I think it's called, the, which it has a mental health insomnia, digital therapeutic, which believes it should be part of your general health care that people, either consumers can get or health plans can prescribe, you know, can deliver or pay for, but anyone should be able to get it. You have another company like Payer Therapeutics, which is saying we're building therapeutics that are going to be prescribed like a drug by a doctor, paid for like a drug, and we're going to go down that path and they're going to be patented. And, you know. So I think there's a question about how do these tools get used? Are they standalone digital tools which are you know used in place of a drug like a drug? Are they used as part of a general complement of care, which I think is how they should end up? And how are they going to get regulated and paid for? And there's a big discussion now. You know, A lot of pharma companies are dabbling their toes in this and making these alliances. A lot of health plans are saying we need to see more evidence. We don't think these things are worth paying for now. The pricing of them is interesting, right? You have a company like Akili, which has got a uh, an ADHD game, right? um, which is competing with what's now ADHD you know, drugs. It's actually rather more expensive than the drugs at the moment. So it's a nice idea to have my kid play a game rather than give them a drug, but the drug is cheaper. <laughs> so that issue, and I would say watching that space um, and seeing how much of that is real, how much of that is sort of BS and, and Pairs now a public company, you can see their stock is way down from where they went public, but then again, everyone else in digital health is as well. So I think that whole area of, of looking about how does some of this stuff actually get rolled out in our current healthcare system? Are there channels within the current system to roll some of this technology out? Or does it require kind of where I started with blowing up the system, having new players approach this in a whole new way? So I think that to me is probably a, an interesting area for, for certainly for the, the people you're dealing with and on the legal side to think about, because that is uncertain. There's government regulation. We don't know how Medicare is going to end up paying for all of this stuff. Um, Medicare hasn't even figured out how to pay for telehealth, <laughs> hasn't really figured out how to pay for, uh, for you know, even something like as simple as the uh, you know, DPP, Diabetes Prevention Program. It'll pay for that in person, won't pay for it digitally, even though we have a Marta Health, which has been doing it successfully digitally for years. So there's a lot of regulation payment issues, which are always going to be there in healthcare, even though, you know, we'd like to blow it up and get the new iPhone equivalent or whatever that is for healthcare. Uh, we're also going to be struggling in that space. And I'd say the digital therapeutics is, is a great place to look, but there are lots of other areas as well, which are going through a similar experience. I'm sure all your clients in the uh, on the legal side and all these big companies are trying to figure that out and uh, figure out how much they have to change and, or ultimately how much they can stop everybody else changing. <laughs> Which is not the point of what you lawyers do. <laughs> we like to think of ourselves as enablers. So <laughs> I, I get to say that as somebody who, who you know, gets to, I think, be one of the lawyers that people are excited to call. Um, you know, when people have a new idea, they want to come together, create a new digital ecosystem. So I, I like to think of myself as, as one of the uh, innovation enablers. 
I, I, I'm teasing. I, 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 know, I know what you do is very important. And uh, in some cases, actually is the innovation enablement, uh, the, the, the underlying part for it. So I'm not trying to be too rude. <laughs> <laughs> I have to be optimistically commercially. Exactly. Well, on, on that note, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation today. I've enjoyed every minute of it and uh, look forward to seeing how some of these trends play out in the in the coming months and years. Thanks, Nina. Really enjoyed it.